Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Timothy chapter 1. There's so much in this book, in his letters, that personally have been an encouragement through the years. And um, it was something that Paul actually had written to Timothy many years ago. It became the catalyst for me making the decision to leave the Anglican church that I used to go to. Um, I'd been there since a child and had grown up, had many friends, family. But it just got to the point that I realized that scripture wasn't being taught. And um, when the minister got up one morning and started um, talking about all sorts of things, but not the Bible, I decided to start reading. And I turned to Timothy, and I was reading in Timothy, and the Lord just struck me with something as I read it. Uh, and it was kind of a confirmation that it was time to go. Uh, and that was the decision uh, to move. I went to a Baptist church um, for about eight months and stayed there. Um, there were a lovely bunch of people. They loved the Lord. They loved his word. Um, but unfortunately, once again, a denominational church that didn't always teach scripture um, because they were concerned that it might upset people. Um, so they would avoid certain topics, uh, never talked about kind of end times things really. They certainly wouldn't touch creation um, because it was deemed to be too controversial and they'd rather have a kind of a happy congregation than presumably a, a well-fed congregation. So, uh, But they were a lovely bunch of people and I was very blessed um, in the time that I spent there. And then Deal Christian Fellowship started, <coughs> which was my mum and dad. They'd left the Anglican Church after I had, um, for different reasons, um, but the Lord had led them out and called them um, to start up a, a fellowship. Um, for many years, um, DCF, as it was known, Deal Christian Fellowship, was independent. Uh, we joined the FIEC, so there's some sort of accountability. We recognized that was important. And then by God's grace, we met Ron Matson, the former pastor here. Um, and Ron, through his counsel, through his uh, encouragement, encouraged us to become part of Calvary Chapel and introduced us to Calvary Chapel. Uh, and we were just blown away with the teaching, uh, with the fact that there were churches that actually believed the Word of God, but not only believed it, but taught it, and taught all of it. And it was so exciting, and we were just so blessed. You know, And there are many churches around this country this morning who are not connected, many independent churches um, that would love to be part of something like we have here. So we are very blessed. Uh, God has done a wonderful thing uh, with Calvary Chapel in the world, and but particularly in this country. So I'm certainly very grateful for people like Chuck Smith, uh, who was the, the individual that the Lord used to start Calvary Chapel. And we really just carry on with that same kind of um, idea that the Lord laid upon Chuck Smith's heart, Chuck had been at a church in America, he uh, was ordained and had been there for about three years and he'd run out of sermons. Uh, he had a, whole, a list of sermons and uh, as he said, typically at that time, if you kind of got through your list, what you did then was move on to another church and he went through the same list of sermons again. Um, and so ministers would go from one church and then move on after a few years to another church and you know, even those kind of things happen today. But he liked it because it was near the beach. Um, and he liked surfing and so on, and liked the environment, and uh, they were quite settled. So he tried, had to think of a way of staying there. And um, it was a book that he'd been passed um, that was uh, in his encouraging pastors to teach verse by verse through Scripture. And so he started off, uh, I believe it was in First um, John, I think it was First John that he started with, um, and just talked through and broke it down, the five chapters, into the, these five weeks of study. And then realized, you know, we could do this with the whole Bible. And so that was really the start of it. And Lord just, just blessed that ministry. And many people came to the Lord through that ministry. And many people then went out and pastored other churches and founded other churches uh, with that same principle. But, you know, really that was nothing new because it was just getting back to what was already there. And one of the things I love about Timothy, or Paul's letter to Timothy, is the number of times doctrine is mentioned. Teaching, instruction. You know, it, it's, it's so important. And really a church that misses out that element is kind of really missing out one of the vital ingredients that, that makes the church what it is. You know, we hear that we should not be blown around or tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. But we should know what we believe. You know, we should understand the scripture and we should grow. You know, we find that Paul also, in fact, I mean, again, I firmly believe that Paul is the writer 
of the epistle to the Hebrews uh, for many reasons. Um, and, and in there, there's that challenge to the church to go on to perfection, you know, leaving behind the basic elementary things. I've done some study notes just looking at some of those elementary principles of the faith. You know, and they include baptism and judgment and those kind of things, um, the rapture of the church and, and other things that really are kind of foundational things that we should know as Christians. And we should go on from that to the really good stuff, which is that relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, we started at the beginning of this year, and I said that one of the New Year's resolutions that you should have there is to get to know Jesus better. You know, as I said, if you don't know Jesus, then get to know Jesus. But if you do know Jesus this year, get to know Jesus better. And that's what Scripture's all about. You know, the beautiful thing about Scripture is that it paints this wonderful portrait that when you stand back and look, you see Jesus. Every page gives you a little bit more information, a little bit more about who Jesus is, his character, his nature, his goodness, his grace. And that's why Scripture is so wonderful. Uh, and this book truly just, just mind-blowing. You know, it, it, it just, it's almost too much for our little human minds to, to comprehend. So we, last week we looked at uh, kind of an introduction to First and Second Timothy and looked at some of the things we're going to be going through um, just to give us a, a flavor. Uh, we'll do a little bit of historical background in a moment and then we'll jump in and we'll see how far we get. So let's just bow our hearts, shall we, and commit this time to the Lord. Father, we do thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word. You've not left us without instruction, but Father, you've given us all the instruction, all the information that we need to know how to live our lives, how to walk by faith, how to serve you, how to interact and to work with each other. Lord, how to deal with this world in which we live. Lord, how our attitude should be toward government and Lord, those in authority. Lord, how this church and any church should be ordered. And so we thank you, Lord, that we can study these things together. We can see, Lord, what you intended for your people, for your church. And, Lord, that it's not about one person's opinion or one person's idea or feeling of how things should be, because, Lord, you have given us your word. And, Lord, there is nothing here that is of private interpretation. This is open that we can all grow and learn together. And so, Lord, just bless this time. Bless again all these, these letters as we study them. Uh, and Father, may they be as fresh to us as we study them as they were for Timothy when he read them. Lord, may they be equally an encouragement to us as they would have been to Timothy when he first read them also. We ask this in Jesus' name. Okay, so let's have a look to start with a little bit of the background, if we can. Now, we need, of course, to understand a little bit about Paul, because Paul is the author of this letter to Timothy. Uh, so just give you a little bit of the background of Paul himself and how he met Timothy and, and hopefully that will give us a good kind of springboard into this study. So of course we know that Saul was born as a Roman citizen uh, and raised in Tarsus. Seemingly he had a Christian mother. Uh, we're not told about his dad but from what we understand his mum was a Jew, uh, his dad was a Greek um, and uh, it would appear that his dad wasn't a believer. We're not given any details about that. Um, but what we do know about Paul is that he had this incredible privilege of being educated in Jerusalem as a Pharisee under Gamaliel. Now, Gamaliel was one of the, the most revered rabbis of that time, and Paul had this incredible honor of being chosen um, to be taught uh, and to learn under Gamaliel. That really was quite something in that time. Now we do find in Acts uh, 26 and elsewhere, and obviously you have the account in Acts chapter 7 uh, onwards, that when Stephen was stoned to death um, because he was just preaching Jesus, that Paul or Saul as he was known then uh, was one of those who was holding the coats uh, and watching these things go on. And no doubt those things, those uh, venomous attitudes and feelings toward the church became part of Paul's own aggression toward the church because Paul then sets off, or Saul sets off, um, to persecute, to imprison, to capture those that were believing in Jesus, this one who the Pharisees and Paul at that time uh, perceived to be this heretical individual who was trying to undo the law of Moses and so on. But of course, on his way to Damascus, 
Paul is confronted by Jesus. You know, there's so much evidence that we can look at for the resurrection. There are so many things historically we can point to that anybody that really goes about this and looks at the evidence with an open mind will come to the conclusion that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And of course, Paul Paul makes that um, statement in 1 Corinthians that the whole foundation of our faith is the basis that Jesus rose from the dead. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, there is no Christianity. It's as simple as that. There is no question, certainly in my heart, and anybody that honestly approaches this, that Jesus rose from the dead. But one of the most compelling reasons to believe that is because people like Paul met him after he was risen from the dead. And, and you, know, you have this Christ-hater, this individual who is persecuting Christians, who in an instant... Is turned around. That, that doesn't happen unless something dramatic takes place. And, and there were others there that witnessed the event. They couldn't quite understand what was going on. Some so, you know, they saw this bright light and some said they heard a voice and so on. But Paul heard very clearly those words of Jesus. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And then finally, they get to the city and we have this Incredible amount of faith, really. Ananias, who visits Saul. Saul was blinded by this light. And God calls Ananias and says, I want you to go and and speak to Saul. He's like, Saul, isn't that the one that's killing Christians? Yeah, we're going to see him. Me? Yeah, go go, go have a chat with him. You can imagine Ananias' apprehension of that. I mean, you and I would be a little bit concerned if we'd been asked to go and see, you know, some head of Al-Qaeda or something that we we knew was beheading or killing Christians. That's the kind of thing that, that Ananias gets to do. But in faith he goes. And of course he witnesses to Paul, he shares the gospel with Paul, and Paul is baptized. And what an amazing transformation. Well, we know that Paul stayed in Damascus for a while. And uh, during that time, he also went down to Arabia in this three-year period. Why did he go down to Arabia? Well, because that's where Jabal el-Lawz was a mountain that you and I know better as uh, the Mount of God, as it's referred to, but Sinai is the place where Moses took the children of Israel after they'd left Egypt. They didn't go down into the Sinai Peninsula, as most of the erroneous maps in the back of the Bibles will show you. No, no. Moses took the children of Israel back to the place where he initially counted God. You remember the burning bush where he was on the backside of the desert. He'd taken the sheep there of his father-in-law Jethro, and that was in Arabia or Midian. And it was in that area that this mountain was that Moses had been at. And, of course, it's from there that he sent back into Egypt. And God says to Moses, you will bring the people here and worship me on this mountain. It was not in the Sinai Peninsula, never in the Sinai Peninsula. That was a much later thing. It was a Constantine, the, uh, the mother of, um, um, sorry, um, Helena, the mother of Constantine, um, that invented, that came up with this idea, because basically she found a mountain and it was somewhere down that way, so what else could it be? So uh, unfortunately a lot of these historical labels have got put in the wrong place. Um, but Paul goes to this mountain in Arabia. Why? Well, because he'd been brought up under Gamaliel, understanding the law, and loved the law, and, and he held it very dear, and now he's faced with Jesus, who seems to be undoing all the law. But of course, Jesus, as he said himself, didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill. And Paul comes back with his great understanding. It's like suddenly the light bulb goes on and Galatians really gives it to us that the law was there as a schoolmaster. The word in the, the Greek is pedagogue. It's like a chaperone, somebody who would look after a child and, and bring them to that, that place of, of maturity and watch over them. The law is just like that, that it brings us to that place of realizing that we need a savior. That's the purpose of the law, to show that all are sinful, that we can't meet God's righteous standard. You know, the the very fact that after the giving of the law in the book of Exodus, we move into the book of Leviticus and we have a whole sacrificial system to deal with the fact that we can't keep the law. And so Paul gets a real grasp on this. And Paul becomes a real champion then 
um, for the church to explain the purpose of the law, where the law fits in. And, of course, we even see that come out uh, in chapter 1 and so on as we go into First uh, Timothy. <coughs> well, after... After returning from Sinai, uh, after these three years, and Paul is then forced uh, to flee in a basket. Seemingly, it wasn't God's time. You know, sometimes we step out uh, and we do things out of great enthusiasm. Enthusiasm is great. Zeal is great. But it's not the same as godly wisdom. Uh, and sometimes we can do things because we, we just feel that, you know, something's got to be done. I love what Oswald Chambers said. Uh, he said that the the, um, the need doesn't necessarily constitute the call. So important. That sometimes there may be a need, but it might not be you, the one that the Lord is calling to fulfill that. And we need to do things in God's time. And this seems to be Paul kind of jumping the gun because seemingly the Lord had other lessons for Paul to learn. Well, after this fleeing uh, for his life, being let down over the walls in the basket, he goes to see Peter and Barnabas uh, down in Jerusalem. Uh, and, of course, he's introduced there to some of the suspicious believers, but talks uh, with Peter and James, and after a couple of weeks there, he's also smuggled out. So he gets to get to know some of the leaders of the church, and he's taken to Caesarea uh, and then back to his hometown of Tarsus. He spends 10 years in Tarsus. What's he going to do? He's not going to be able to work in the, the synagogues. His kind of status as a, a, a revered rabbi, that's in shreds now. He's a Christian. He believes in Jesus. So what does Paul do? Well, he starts working. He starts making tents to provide for himself, to provide an income. And, and, you know, that must have been really challenging because wanting to get out and tell everybody about Jesus, I'm sure he did. And yet, in a sense, confined to a day job, having to provide, having to pay the bills. But the Lord's had a lot of learning for him to do. And sometimes, you know, the Lord does that. You know, you only have to look through Scripture. How many times the Lord takes individuals, gives them, gives them a calling, and then they have to wait many years until they see that come to fruition. And it may be the same with you. Maybe you feel the Lord has called you to something. Or he's giving you a gift and you're not sure how it's going to be used or whatever. Certainly in my own life, I can, I can echo that. You know, for a number of years, I really felt the Lord was going to use me, but I just didn't know quite how and which way. And it was very frustrating. But I kind of used that time to read and to study and to try and learn more and understand more of Scripture. And all of a sudden, I realized that all that time waiting hadn't just been waiting, it had been training. And God does those things with us. Never never despise the day of small beginnings uh, because the Lord does a lot in us in those days that we don't perceive, we don't always see. So again, 10 years are spent in, in Tarsus and he visits Cilicia and Syria, but he's still relatively unknown to the church in Judea. And then Barnabas brings Saul back to Antioch. And this is re- really where it starts to, to happen, as it were, um, for, for Saul. They spend a, a year there teaching together and Saul sharing the things that the Lord has revealed to him, particularly about the law. And then Saul and Barnabas and Titus, and remember we're going to maybe look on at Titus, it might be good to go after we've done 1 and 2 Timothy to look at Titus as well because they're in this group in the New Testament. Um, they bring some famine relief money to the church that was in Jerusalem. Now, you may remember that the church in Jerusalem had kind of thrown everything in together. Um, everything they had, they shared. Um, but they got to the point that they were uh, struggling. And so um, Saul, Barnabas, Titus, again, just bring this relief uh, down to the church in Judea. Uh, and again, privately, they get to meet with the, the leaders of the church uh, who acknowledge that Saul has got this ministry to go to the Gentiles. You know, a, a specific calling. And it's something that the Lord had already been working on with Peter. Because remember, Peter had had that vision of the sheep coming down from heaven and he'd had this trip to Cornelius. And he gets to Cornelius. He's going one of these, you, you can make a wonderful kind of sketch out of it, really, that Cornelius kind of summons Paul. Paul gets there and Cornelius goes, okay, what are you going to tell me? And Peter's like, well, you called me. Well, what am I? It's this kind of really awkward moment you could detect in the, in the text. And suddenly Peter perceives. He understands why he's there. That the Lord has got him there to realize. And the whole vision with the, the, the food and everything else was that the gospel can now go to the Gentiles. It's not just for the Jews. This is for the whole world. 
And that God is going to bring everybody who will into this wonderful family. And so Peter was being prepared for these things. And then at the right time, so Saul then comes and shares what he's been doing, ministering amongst the Gentiles and so on. And so they acknowledge that Saul has been given this ministry of the Lord. <laughs> now, we get to this first missionary journey. That's the places they visit. We'll go through, I'll show you on the map where they go. But it's Lystra and Derby uh, that visit, and particularly Lystra, uh, where Paul will for the first time meet this young, probably 13, 14-year-old boy by the name of Timothy. They set off from Antioch. This is Paul and Barnabas. Uh, taking John Mark with them. We're familiar with John Mark, having just studied the gospel of, of Mark, the gospel of John Mark. And they arrive at Samos on the island of Cyprus, and they go through the island. And when they're there, they encounter this false prophet um, who was a friend of the governor. Uh, this false prophet by the name of Bar-Jesus is struck blind. But as a result of this, the governor of the island by the name of Sergius Paulus becomes Christian. He's a very senior Roman official. He's in the place of, of Caesar, effectively, making decrees on behalf of Rome. I mean, this is one of the top jobs in the Roman Empire. There were various other outposts, various other places um, with other governors that were looking after uh, regional territories and so on on behalf of Caesar. But certainly this was one of the key ones, the whole island of Cyprus. And we're told that he's the proconsul. Well, Luke, who documents things so thoroughly and accurately um, in the book of Acts and obviously in his, in his gospel, um, tells us that he was a learned man. And actually we find that he was indeed a learned man. Um, Pliny actually uh, quotes from him uh, and so on uh, and acknowledges the fact um, that the things he'd written were historically verifiable and so on. So uh, not just a governor, but somebody who was learned. Well, this individual, Sergius Paulus, because of these things, this miracle that takes place, becomes a Christian. But it, more than that, because he adopts Paul as his own son. Now this is something that happened quite a lot in the Roman Empire, and we see various historic examples of it. But it's from this moment that Saul takes on the name Paulus, his adopted name, his new family name. And this is a really important step because actually it gives Paul a standing way above an ordinary citizen. So much so that later... When he appeals to Caesar, his request is heard. An average citizen wouldn't just be able to take their case straight to Caesar. But because of the family he'd been adopted into, because of the standing he now has, he's given that privilege later on. Now, Sergius Paulus, we know from history later, ends up um, kind of a, a sideways and downward move in a sense, uh, looking after the waterways in Rome, looking after um, the River Tiber in Rome. And it's it's a strange move. Historically, we know that's what he ended up doing. It's almost like uh, Bill Cooper, who details a lot of these things um, in his book, The Authenticity of the New Testament, um, goes through and explains that it would be like a prime minister ending up you know, being given the job of looking after you know, some parks or, or whatever. Uh, it's a kind of a really downward step, but seemingly he'd been a very good, faithful minister for Rome. But once he's a Christian, it makes it very difficult for him to follow those Roman practices and customs of worshipping and, and uh, deifying these gods that were not gods. And he knew clearly by this point they were not gods. And so um, he'd not committed any crime, but just kind of moved out of the way, um, Sergius Paulus. So... Paul then goes on from that point and interestingly heads over to the mainland, not for um, uh, just random reasons, but one of the reasons he moved over there was to meet the family of Sergius Paulus. Again, historically, these things, you can verify them and show them again. Bill Cooper goes through the details. Uh, and that was required when somebody was adopted into the family that they would then go and meet the rest of the family. So he arrives uh, at uh, Italia and then goes on up to Perga and so on. Uh, and it's at this point that John Mark that leaves them, returns to Jerusalem. Um, and you remember later they have this um, dispute, um, Paul and Barnabas, as to when they go out the second time, as to whether they're going to take John Mark or not, and so on. We talked about a lot of that going through the study of Gospel of Mark. 
They then travel on, uh, Paul and Barnabas, all the way up to Antioch. This is the other Antioch. There's two. Um, you can see this is uh, the northern one in what we would today consider Turkey. Uh, and then from there down to Iconium. Now, <clears throat> while they're there, there's this opposition that's stirred up against them by the Jews. The Jews are not happy that Paul, as his custom was, was to go to the synagogues to preach to the Jews, to show them that Jesus was the Messiah. And, of course, the Jews don't like that at all. Um, so this Gentile plot on them forces them to leave, and so they head then down to Lystra. Now, Paul heals a cripple when they arrive there, and they're hailed as gods. And this, you know, Hermes and Zeus are the two gods they're apparently hailed as being. And Paul and Barnabas say, we're not gods, we're just ordinary men. And you see the, the, the fickle nature of the human heart, because less than 24 hours later, these people that were hailing them as gods and worshipping them, or trying to worship them, will be trying to kill them. What happens is that enemies come down from Antioch and Iconium uh, and they stir up the crowd against um, Paul and Barnabas. And so they're actually dragged outside the city. This is is at Lystra. And some scholars think they were killed. um, And amongst those looking on would have been this young individual, Timothy. His first encounter, possibly with uh, Christianity, we're not sure, but certainly with Paul, was to see this individual come and preaching, doing these miracles, and again, being dragged out of the city. What does Paul do? Gets up on his feet, goes straight back in again. That's going to create some kind of impression on this young boy. As a result, they move on, Paul and Barnabas, down to Derby, and then the easy option would have been to just go back to Antioch from there. They don't. They go back retracing their steps to see how the churches were doing. Even though they knew that there was a risk to their own life, there was going to be lots of persecution, but eventually they come back to Antioch and like we do, we have a sharing time. I'm sure they had a great sharing time. Just talking about all the things the Lord had done on their journey, the way that the Lord had blessed them, these miracles that had taken place. They stepped down in faith. What an incredible journey they'd had. Now, in amongst all of this, they then get to this uh, council, which was recorded in Acts 15, uh, where there's the controversy uh, about what should Gentile believers do? What does it mean for a Gentile believer um, to follow Christ? And are there rules and conditions and so on? What about circumcision? What about the keeping of the Mosaic law? And Acts 15 deals with all of this. And so Paul and Barnabas go to the elders in Jerusalem and they, they bring this to them so they can resolve it. And Peter testifies in this incredible statement Peter makes in Acts 15. He says, Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, and specifically Gentiles he's referring to here, which neither our fathers, the Jews, nor we, the Jewish leadership of the church, were able to bear? And he says this, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is incredible, we shall be saved even as they. What he's saying is that we, the Jews can be saved in just the same way as the Gentiles, i.e. by faith in Jesus Christ, by nothing else, just faith in Jesus Christ. It's an incredible statement that Peter makes. And so these two problems that are raised, again, what must the Gentile do to be saved? And the other one that's raised is, what is going to become of Israel then? Well, James makes this statement. Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon, or Simon Peter, has declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. We know you and I this morning are in that sentence. We're there, we're part of that group. We're of that group that the Lord has visited to call out a people for his name. And and to this agree the words of the prophets. As it is written, after this I will return. After what? After God has called out a people from the Gentiles. After that, I will return. And will build again the tabernacle of David, which is fallen down. And I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up. In a nutshell, that deals with the whole issue of what is to happen with Israel. God's promises have not been forgotten. 
God hasn't gone back on his word. The promises that were made to the nation of Israel, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, regarding the land, regarding the monarchy, the throne of David, those promises haven't been forgotten. God doesn't change. They will be fulfilled. As the whole of the Old Testament bears witness and testimony to, God will bring the nation of Israel back to him. But first of all, he's going to bring in this Gentile company. Just turn with me, if you will, to the book of Romans. And just turn to well, Romans 9, first of all, Romans chapter 9. And when you're turning... You see, the Gentiles were told that they should abstain from idols, from worshipping idols and so on. They should abstain from fornication and abstain from things strangled and from blood. Blood is a a no-go. We're not to touch, drink, eat blood in any way, shape or form because the life of the flesh is in the blood. Blood is special. God has intended it to be so right from the work of creation. The very first thing um, that we find on day five of, of creation, the first thing that has life, properly has life, and has blood uh, uh, synonymous. They come together. Uh, And so we see that life and blood are linked. And so that's why this prohibition is given us there. There's very few rules in that sense that we're given, but certainly we're not to have things that are strangled or the blood has to be drained out. Uh, and there's a, we could do a big, long, interesting study. Um, and I don't mean to offend anybody here, um, but the satanic undertones behind things like uh, vegetarianism and so on, that's not to say if you're a vegetarian that's wrong in and of itself, but there is a satanic undertone to do with blood uh, and to do with the shedding of blood. Um, Maybe some other time we could do a more detailed study on that, but that's quite a fascinating area to look at and the reasons why uh, and so on. <clears throat> okay, now, again, uh, there was no commitment required from these Gentile believers to follow after the Mosaic practices, uh, the ceremonial laws, circumcision and so on. And I, I'm highlighting that for an important reason that we'll come to. But then this issue of Israel's destiny is addressed in Romans 9, 10 and 11. Now, Paul starts in Romans 9 by saying, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises. I mean, Paul really passionately saying here how much he would love Israel to come to know the Lord. Even he's willing to throw his own life away. But goes on through chapter 9. And then on to chapter 10 and chapter 11. And this question is asked about God's dealing with Israel. Chapter 11, verse 1, I say then, has God cast away his people? Paul makes it very clear, God forbid. Of course not. He says, because I'm of Israel. You can't say God's cast away Israel because I'm a Jew and the early church are Jewish, so God hasn't cast away the Jews because the church essentially, initially started off as Jews. And he goes on to explain that the multitude, the, the, the majority of Israel were blinded. But there were some that were believed. This election according to the remnant of grace in verse 5 it speaks of. He gives us this wonderful example of Elijah and so on. Elijah thought he was the only one. Do you remember back in the days with uh, King uh, Ahab and Jezebel and when they were on Mount Carmel and so on? Elijah thought he was the only one of the prophets, the Lord's prophets left. And actually the Lord had reserved 7,000 who hadn't bound the knee to Baal. No, just in the same way God has reserved for himself those that are his from Israel. But the majority were blinded. And we read about that in Luke 19 as Jesus rides in on the the, um, uh, Palm Sunday, as we refer to it. As he comes down, the Mount of Olives, he pronounces this blindness on Israel for missing the day that had been prophesied by Daniel. The day that the Messiah would come. 
And so this blindness, which has started then, has carried on through the last almost 2,000 years. And verse 25, Paul says, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits. That blindness in part is happened to Israel. Why in part? Well, because part of Israel has been blinded. But some of Israel believed, and some of Israel became the church. The early church were, as I say, essentially Jewish, the disciples, the apostles. So some did believe, but part of Israel has been blinded. And then verse, uh, as it goes on, it says, until, this is exactly what we've just been reading that James was saying, until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. God is gathering in the Gentiles of which we're part, of which Timothy and all these others that Paul is ministering to on his journeys that start to come in, become part of this group. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, they shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, and I shall take away their sins. It says, as concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. So although the, the Jews are certainly, many of the Paul encountered were against the gospel, and in that sense they were considered enemies, Actually, in God's scheme, in God's plan, we're told here, they are beloved for the Father's sake. They are still part of God's plan. Now, the second missionary journey then sets off uh, this contention with uh, Paul and Barnabas. Um, Again, is is very sharp. And so as a result of this, Paul heads off with Silas. And Barnabas takes Mark to Cyprus. Uh, But this time, Paul and Silas head off going through uh, the land route this time. Uh, First of all, coming uh, to Derby and then on to Lystra. Now, this has been three years or so since they were last there. Timothy, a little bit older, maybe around about 17 years old now. And as Paul comes back, Timothy has grown in knowledge and grown in grace. And no doubt it was a great encouragement to the church there that Paul had come back and visited them again. And it's at this point that Paul asks Timothy to come and join them in their journeys. And Timothy's now going to get this incredible experience of going and following, seeing Paul do these things, seeing Paul's faith, seeing Paul preach, seeing Paul plant these churches and learning all the time. They go off to Antioch. <clears throat> Paul tries to head off into Bithynia, but the Holy Spirit checks him and says, no, you're not to do that, because the Lord has this plan to, to bring the gospel into Europe. And Paul sees this vision of a man from Macedonia urging him across. And so they head across the Trias and then across the, the, the sea, and they arrive at Philippi. Again, that's where Paul and Silas are thrown in jail. Timothy with them at this point, but not not in jail with them, but but there. And of course, in the middle of the night, they're praising the Lord. Remember the the account? And suddenly the doors and the bars are all loosened, and the jailer comes in running, thinking that he's going to be killed because his prisoners have escaped. And they're sat there praising the Lord. And the, the jailer and his family come to the Lord. And again, Timothy, seeing all of these things firsthand, Witnessing all of these things. And then travel on to Thessalonica. Just three weeks uh, they spend there, but in that time Paul teaches them so much. And we, we get that from the lessons to First and Second Thessalonians. The, 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 the whole panorama of, of God's plan, of the end times, of what's going to happen, speaking about the Antichrist and all that is yet to come. And again, Timothy learning all these things in his training period. And they then head on to Berea. Um, those in Berea received the word with all readiness. And they searched the scriptures daily to see whether those things were so. Uh, but the Jews from Thessalonica chase them down, they find them, and then they're kind of forced out of there as well. So Paul heads off uh, to Athens. Silas and Timothy stay behind for a little bit longer. Uh, Paul at Athens, of course, then sees these uh, Greek gods at the Oropagus, Mars Hill, I'm sure you're familiar um, and there's that kind of uh, conversation that, that Paul then has as they Paul speaks to the men there about the, the statue they have to the unknown God. And he says, I know who that God is. And he talks to them about the God who's made heaven and earth. 
Paul then departs from there to Corinth. And interestingly, when he gets to Corinth, he writes later to the Corinthians, he says, you know, when I arrived, I didn't come with excellency of speech, I didn't come, you know... He just had debates with philosophers, I and mean, that's like going up with, you know, having a debate with, um, you know, the, the the top agnostics and atheists from Oxford and Cambridge, Richard Dawkins, and so on. That, that's the kind of thing he'd just been doing in Athens with the the philosophers, the greatest minds of the day. And I've got no doubt that Paul could have tied them up in knots with his arguments. Some did believe, we're told, but when he gets to Corinth, he says, "You know what? I'm just going to just preach Jesus," because doesn't matter how much wisdom we throw into our conversations. It doesn't matter if we can convince somebody intellectually. The problem is still the problem of the heart. And so Paul comes and he just preaches Jesus. And he makes it very clear when he gets to Corinth, you know, all I'm going to do is preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the gospel. Because if you won't respond to that, then you're not going to respond to anything. But, you see, it, pre- it pleased the Lord through the preaching of the cross, the preaching of the gospel to save those who would believe. Isn't that what we're told? Just the simplicity of preaching. It's foolishness. It doesn't make sense to us. It's so simple. And it's almost insulting. The gospel is so easy that all we have to do is to believe in Jesus Christ. Believe that he paid the price for our sin. Put our trust in him and we are saved. And you can pray that prayer in church. You can pray that prayer anywhere. But the moment you do it, you step from the road that is heading to destruction to the road that is heading to eternity with Jesus. You pass from death to life, from darkness to light. I spent quite a while there, around about two years, despite the Jewish opposition, and it's there that Paul from Corinth writes the letters to the Thessalonians and so on. And then eventually they sail back to Ephesus. Um, Paul resists those that wanted to stay a bit longer. But the, this journey to Ephesus is very important because it will be later that Paul will leave Timothy here to pastor the church. After all these learned and all of these journeys. And eventually they travel back to Antioch via Caesarea in Jerusalem. Now... I'm just going to give you a very quick recap of these things. We're going to, we won't get into the text, I don't think, this morning now. But Timothy, as I said already, the son of a Greek father, a Jewish mother. Um, we do know of his grandmother, uh, who was also uh, a Christian, um, and of their faith, because that's recorded for us. Um, living at Lystra, as again, we've already highlighted. Uh, and this reputation that he'd earned for himself. And Paul, again, may well have led him to Christ personally, but he recognized that calling on his life very early on. And Paul clearly had this great confidence in Timothy. Uh, again, we already know from 2 Timothy 3.15 that from a, a child, Timothy had known the Holy Scriptures. Again, the influence of his mother and his grandmother. And we've talked before about the influence that grandparents can have on grandchildren and how important it is. Um, and of course, Paul then takes Timothy as his own kind of protege. And, and trains him up. Um, Timothy's calling, again, as I said, was recognized by Paul. Uh, and there were other prophetic utterances that were confirmed. These scriptures are there if you want to check them out and look at them. We'll go through them as we go through the text. Um, but Paul becomes like a spiritual father to Timothy. And he speaks of him a couple of times, my true son in the faith and my dear son. It's almost as if one, he's adopted himself. I, I've heard it said before, and I think there's a real merit in this, that you should always try to look, if you're a Christian man, for somebody who you can take on and encourage and, and train and, and, and teach. You know, and at the same time, you should have somebody that you look to that can also be that kind of tutor for you. And the same for Christian ladies. Take a lady under your wing, pray for them, encourage them, help them to understand more about the grace of God, the goodness of God, about the roles of a godly Christian woman. And at the same time, as a Christian woman, you should have someone above you that you're looking to, that you're learning from. It's great if we, we can do that within the fellowship. Sometimes we don't have enough people to always do that. But, you know, there's always individuals, there's always people that we can look to that can be an example. Never set them on a pedestal. Because we're all fallible. We all make mistakes. And sometimes if you put your trust in somebody, that trust can be shattered. But ultimately, it's still very helpful. Just as we see this relationship 
with Paul and Timothy here. So Paul takes him on as a companion, and we see from a number of scriptures that he becomes this really trustworthy fellow laborer. You know, it's it's really wonderful to have somebody close to you that you trust. You know, I'm blessed in this fellowship to have a number of people just like that. People that say they're going to do something and they do it. Um, I can name names, and I will, because I'm so blessed by Leon and all that Leon does. You know, every week Leon puts the, the service slides together. And on a Sunday night I go, or Saturday night I go to put the, the scripture text in and things I use for the teaching. It's always done. I never have to, apart from the occasions when I forget to give him the, the list. That's my fault. But it's always done. Just that little thing, do you know how much that means? At the end of a long day and at the end of a, an evening where I sat up studying, preparing to teach, and I go there and everything's done. You know, Pete also is somebody that the Lord has raised up through this year, through the last year. Yeah, and we're blessed to have people like that. They need to be encouraged. But each one of us, you know, we need to be trustworthy for each other in ways that we can look to encourage and bless each other by being there for each other. Paul, again, saw Timothy um, in this way. Uh, he becomes this kind of faithful representative and messenger uh, we'll find that actually six of Paul's epistles include Timothy in the salutation. So the letters Paul writes to these other churches, Timothy's name is on the list, greeting them and encouraging them. Many of them would have got to know Timothy personally. Now, one of the interesting things that does come up is that Paul will have Timothy circumcised. Now, given all that we said earlier, that kind of seems a bit strange until you realize the context. It wasn't done out of any legalistic sense at all. It was simply so that as Paul, Timothy was a Jew, as we've already said, his mother was a Jew, so he was classed as a Jew. It was simply so that it gave them great opportunity to preach the gospel among the Jews. Paul said, I've become all things to all men, that by all means I may win some. You know, and we need to do whatever we can to, to get alongside people that we can preach the gospel to. There was controversy about these kind of things, but I'm not going to go into all of that uh, now. <clears throat> The last message that we get from Paul to Timothy is very touching. As uh, Paul is writing in his final days of imprisonment, he's writing to Timothy, still encouraging him. But after being released from his first Roman imprisonment, Paul, with Timothy by his side, went round and again visited a number of these churches, including again Ephesus. And this time on departure from Ephesus, Paul then, this later on, will leave Timothy there. Um, to provide leadership to the congregation. And it's then after an interval that Paul writes this letter of 1 Timothy, urging him on in that ministry. Remember I said last week, really the theme of 1 Timothy is don't quit. It's too soon to quit. Timothy, no doubt struggling, even all the things he'd seen, all the things he'd witnessed uh, following after Paul. Timothy, as an individual, seems to be this kind of passive Timid, maybe retiring, possibly easily intimidated individual, but certainly the kind of character that God would choose. And Paul repeatedly spurs him into action. Timothy was young, but Paul makes it very clear. He says, don't let anyone despise your youth. That's actually given 15 years later uh, than they initially had met. He was to let nothing, including his relative youth, stand in the way of his performance of duty. And we'll see that because Timothy becomes very aware because of the things Paul says to him, that he was doing what he was doing, not because he'd chosen to, but because God had called him to it. And like a good soldier, he was to fight the good fight, aggressively protecting and propagating the gospel using the full range of his gifts. You know, those gifts aren't just the obvious things you think about. It's not just you think of a past from the gifts you might expect to see, but it's things like gentleness, self-control, and patience. Those kind of gifts that don't always get seen, but the Lord uses in each and every one of us. And we need to allow the, the fruit of the Spirit to overflow, that the Lord uses those things in our ministry one to another. Once again, Timothy seems to 
have easily been discouraged. And for this reason, it's a great study for us because each of us go through the same things. And I've said before, many, many ministers and you read about will talk about great times of depression. I know that Spurgeon struggled immensely with depression. Um, you, you think these people are almost invincible. You read the things they write. But, you know, sometimes they become targets and Satan will do everything he can to pull them down. Timothy, no exception. And the last time Paul had been with him, he encouraged him to stay at Ephesus and finish this work. Finally, Timothy did seem to have some physical ailments as well. Interesting to know, you know, no different there than now. Um, we all struggle with different things. And um, again, we need God's grace in all the things that he calls us to. We'll leave it there. We haven't got to the text. Next week, I promise you, we'll get into the text. But hopefully that just gives you a bit of a background, a little bit of this this man that we're going to be studying this this letter, who receives this letter, and the journey that they've been on, Paul and Timothy, together as foul hearts. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for these examples. Father, in Hebrews we read of those who have gone before us whose faith we should follow. And Father, as Paul was such an individual for Timothy, Lord, we pray that you would place around us people whose faith we can follow. Lord, people that we can look to and look up to who will be an encouragement in our walk. And Lord, at the same time, give us that desire and compassion, Lord, to look to those whom we can be an example to. And Lord, help us to be mindful that we are, whether we want to be or not, examples to those that are younger than us. Lord, even the children in this fellowship, Lord, who look to us, they look to see how we respond, how we react. Lord, help us to be an encouragement to them. Lord, to be interested in the things they do in Sunday school, to chat to them, not just to brush them aside because they're making lots of noise. Because, Lord, if you tarry amongst that group of young children, there could be those that will lead your church in the days ahead. So, Father, we pray that you help us to learn from these things. And, Lord, to seek your face in all things that we would serve you. Lord, however you call us to, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, may God richly bless you. If you've not already read it, read chapter 1. Get ready for next week. God bless you.